when we're all interacting and doing our thing in a society, that you can have good and bad societies or healthy or unhealthy societies. And what's happening at that emergent level of society then feeds back and very dramatically affects the course of individual lives and happiness and opportunities to fulfill one's potential. So again, it isn't a question of societal welfare or individual welfare. It's understanding how these things fit together in a dynamic emergent system and create a set of arrangements that enable human flourishing is what's called the eudaimonic perspective. There's a lot of inertia in institutional arrangements. So we've got arrangements that were pretty good for the mid-20th century. And the character of the economy has changed so much that we need to evolve some new institutions which can accommodate the ways that our individual decisions affect each other. And we build that into thinking about what better outcomes look like and have that period of institutional innovation for the digital economy. In the digital era, data is practically the air we breathe. So why does everybody treat it like a product to be hoarded and sold at profit? How would our world change if big tech operated on assumptions and incentives more aligned with the needs of a healthy society? Is more data or our bigger models really better? As human beings scamper around like prehistoric mammals under the proverbial feet of the new enormous digital monopolies that have emerged due to the web's economies of scale. How might we tip the scales back to a world governed wisely by human judgment and networks of trust? Would Facebook and Twitter be more beneficial for society if they were public services like the BBC? And how do we settle on the social norms that help ensure the ethical deployment of AI? These and many other questions grow from the boundary-challenging developments of rapid innovation that define our century, a world in which the familiar dyads of state and market, public and private, individual and institutional, are all called into question. Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and every other week we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This week on Complexity, we speak with two researchers helping to rethink political economy. SFI external professor Eric Beinhocker is the professor of public policy practice at the University of Oxford and founder and executive director of the Institute for New Economic Thinking at the university's Oxford Martin School. He is also the author of The Origin of Wealth, the radical remaking of economics, and what it means for business and society. Diane Coyle is the Bennett Professor of Public Policy at the University of Cambridge and co-director of the Bennett Institute, whose latest book, Cogs and Monsters, What Economics Is and What It Should Be, was published by Princeton University Press last fall. In the first episode of this subseries, we spoke with SFI President David Krakauer about how the study of political economy has changed over the last 200 years due to the innovation of new mathematical and computational methods. In this episode, we examine how the technological milieu that empowered these changes has also transformed the subject of study itself. Digital surveillance architecture, social media networks, big data, 
and largely inadequate attempts to formalize econometrics have all had a profound impact on modern life. In what ways do new institutions beget even newer institutions to address their unintended consequences? How should we think about the complex relationships between private and public agencies? And what status should we give the data they produce and consume? What is it going to take to restore the trust in one another necessary for society to remain coherent? And what are the most important measures to help economists and policymakers navigate the turbulence of our times into a more inclusive, prosperous, and sustainable world? If you value our research and communication efforts, please rate and review us at Apple Podcasts and consider making a donation or finding other ways to engage with us at santafe.edu slash engage. You can find the complete show notes for every episode with transcripts and links to cited works at complexity.simplecast.com. Thank you for listening. Dan Coyle, Eric Beinhocker, I'm honored to have you both here together on Complexity Podcast. Thanks, Michael. Pleasure. Yes, indeed. I think the honor is all ours. So why don't we start by providing a bit of exposition, background on yourselves as minds and talk about how you have come to asking the questions that we all understand that we're going to be exploring on today's call. Eric, why don't you go first? Sure. Well, I guess I've done my career backwards. My education went into the tech and business world, working with software startups and venture capital, and then at a a big consulting firm for many years. And then through twists and turns, I found my way back into academia, where I now had the program on the Institute for New Economic Thinking at Oxford University. But a key part of that journey was my interactions with the Santa Fe Institute. When I was at McKinsey, I got engaged with SFI and the program looking at uh, complexity in the economy. And that uh, basically turned my world upside down. Or actually, I should say, it helped me explain the real world that I was in and showed me why there was a big gap between what I'd learned in my economics training and what I'd experienced in my real world jobs. And SFI helped bring those two things together and gave me a set of questions about how the economy works that I've been pursuing ever since. And in our group at Oxford, we have many collaborations with folks in the SFI community. I guess I've done my career backwards too. I'd never thought of it like that. I was trained as a mainstream economist and then spent a long time working in both public policy world, Treasury and various other bodies such as the Competition Authority here in the UK, and also as a journalist writing about economic policy and then came back into the academic world. I'm an economist, but my institute is a public policy institute, relatively new, and we work very firmly in a disciplinary way, which is a nice echo of SFI. And I suppose the question that motivates me is, what does it mean to say we want to make things better? Better for whom? And what does better mean? And how do you think about bringing about change in a complex, messy, difficult to understand kind of system? I think I first came across Eric by sending fan mail about his marvellous book. So we are very much in sympathy in the way we think about things. But I guess I've come at it less formally through complexity, although we've done some work on complexity. And I should just add that the fan mail came straight back at Diane for her many marvellous books and articles. So in the reading I've done on both of you, you're 
aligned in your critique of GDP. I want to back up a bit and say, okay, so Diane, if you can talk a little bit, please, about the synoptic view, kind of like a Jose Luis Borges one, one, like the map, the size of the territory. There's this sense in the modern digital milieu that we're going to be able to create a twin of everything and therefore understand it and control it. And that this is fundamentally problematic. And then Eric, if you care to also speak to the flaws in that approach. Every discipline is trying to make sense of something that's messy and complex and you have to simplify in some way. And economists have a very characteristic way of doing that. And it's modeling, it's finding a parsimonious number of relationships and series of data to construct a model economy and also think of themselves as analysts standing outside that model. So here is a world where we've got millions of businesses and individuals making decisions, interacting with each other, and a discipline that in the mainstream had this social planner perspective that you can stand outside it and look down and figure out the right interventions because you know what the best outcome looks like and you can figure out what incentives will get people to behave in ways that will deliver that better outcome. And that's sort of bizarre in a way because there's a parallel tradition in economics of thinking about markets as as very complex emergent systems and that's much more in the sort of free market, markets sort things out better tradition. And the debate dates right back to the 1930s and the socialist calculation debate where on the one hand you had people of the left who said we can plan this, we can control it, we've got this social planner perspective. And then the other people broadly of the right who said no, no, markets will sort this out and all of the information that's needed to get better outcomes is captured in prices and the government needs to step out of that. And yet at the same time, economics is a discipline being very focused on markets as a means of bringing about good things and yet not at all social planners. So there's a sort of tension in there. And of course, in digital, the dream of social planning has kind of been revived in the idea of seeing room as one of our political advisors described it where you can get much better data, you can use big data. So finally, we can achieve this dream of managing things to get better outcomes. And yet at the same time, in a serious doubt about could you ever do the amount of calculation that's needed to make that possible? And by the way, what about all that stuff about markets working? And also, by the way, actually, digital markets don't seem to be working very well. They're not very competitive. And we've got dominant players that we're worrying about. So it's analytically a bit of a mess. And Eric and I have been talking about, we need to get some people together to talk about what does better look like and how should economists start thinking about evaluating policies and policy outcomes. Eric, you want to take that? Well, yeah, of course. There's an old cliche in business that you manage what you measure and GDP and the other associated metrics that we use to understand and measure and simplify the economy is important in how they shape people's decision-making and the goals that policymakers pursue, how the media reports on the economy and so on. I think as Diane you know, very eloquently described, in some ways, you know, we know there are many problems with GDP as a metric, but it is a bit more of a symptom you know, rather than a cause. And the deeper issue is how we're conceptualizing and thinking about the economy. And, you know, as Diane notes in her wonderful book, GDP, an affectionate history, you know, it does what it says on the tin and there is useful information to be had in it and if it's used appropriately. But the deeper problem is this question of understanding 
what kind of a system is the economy and how does it actually work? And then in that system, as Diane noted, what does better mean? What do we want in better? And then given our understanding of that complex system, how would we get to better? You know, what kind of changes and policies and behaviors and cultural norms and institutions and all these things that make up the economy, what would have to be different to get to better? And so I think that's the kind of bigger journey you know, that we're all on. And connected very deeply to that, you know, are questions of understanding what well-being is, what people's normative and ethical behavioral moral frameworks are, what our moral intuitions are, that one of the great mistakes of economics in the 20th century was to separate economics from morality and ethics. The origins of economics, the two fields were very closely fused. One of the great founders of economics, Adam Smith, made major contributions on both subjects. But there was this idea that economics could be a kind of antiseptic science without values or moral judgments, technocratic, you know, highly mathematical field. And you know that's led to a big decoupling between how the economy works and how many people feel that it impacts their lives and their well-being, you know, whether it's on issues of climate change or economic justice or racial equality or many other issues. And so part of the work that and I and others are doing are trying to bring those agendas back together. Yes, and um, I think things are changing. I've just finished teaching class on competition policy, which is one of the domains where we thought we had technical answers. We knew how to do this analysis. We could figure out how to make markets work better in the sense of more competition among different companies providing higher quality goods and innovating and so on. And that really has repoliticized. And you can see that in the fact there's a debate now between Chicago school who say it's enough to look at the prices consumers pay. And if they're low, what's the problem? We don't care if they're big companies. And on the other hand, what's been labeled the neo-Brandeisians who say, these are big and powerful companies, power matters, structure matters, and we need to start thinking about it like that. So here's one technocratic domain that has, I think, again, become political economy. But a lot of economists, a lot of us still describe ourselves as engineers or plumbers or dentists with this sense that there's a technical answer and you can fix it. A lot of people think GDP is a real thing, but it's an idea. And it's an idea that was created for one purpose and has been used for the completely different purpose of measuring progress in society. When, as Eric says, actually to do that, you've got a lot of ethical issues to bring into the discussion. Yeah, you talk about how this idea that we think of data as property, and yet data is non-rival. It's inherently relational. It's social. You know, I'm thinking about Lewis Hyde's history of the common as air, his book, where he talks about the enclosures of first the forest in which everyone hunts, and then the intellectual commons, and then there's a speculative third enclosure of the commons. And clearly, the public-private divide is something that bears heavily in these considerations. So clearly, it's not just more data is better. It's what kind of data, and then how are we conceiving of it? How are we thinking about it? What metaphors are more appropriate to use? And then how can we go about actually regulating this? Because the fact is that we have enormous market forces that are on a runaway tear. And it's not clear to me that it's an easy thing to reconfigure the way that we imagine the use of these metrics. 
We've got a very individualist tradition in economics and in law, and we also have this conception of property, the definition of property rights as being the way that you both have a legal order and make markets work effectively, that markets work best when you've assigned those property rights. And these have both been applied to the data economy with a presumption that the people accumulating lots of data thereby become the owners of it. It's their property. And even some of the solutions that are talked about, data as labour, so you get paid for providing some of your data, that's an individualist solution as well, sees it as a property transaction. And for me, that's the wrong way to think about it, because it is a crystallisation on a computer of social relations. And no data, very little data, is useful by itself. It needs to be matched up with something else. That applies even to very personal data. Anybody who's going to be in a room with me in a pandemic might want to know what my temperature is, even though that's clearly personal data. And the use that we get out of it to make our lives better, develop businesses, whatever, depends on being able to match up different kinds of data. And that's not going to happen if we've got this property framing. You know, We're going to have to pay the Googles and the Metas for all their data, are we? So I think we need to think about it much more as in terms of rights of access. Who is allowed to know what and for what purposes? And we need both a technical and a legal framework that will make that possible. So you can protect privacy where it's needed, but also ensure that the data is available to be used. And in some social sciences, there's this concept of privacy in public, which is exactly about limiting what you know about somebody for the purposes at hand. Whereas what we're seeing is all of the data about somebody being joined up by either big companies or governments in ways that are actually very privacy invading. So I would like to see a reframing of how we think about it. How we get there, given politics and law, is a completely different matter. And I don't have easy answers to that. And just to build off Diane's answer, I would note that in addition to thinking or misconceiving of data through the lens of property, that more broadly... You know, we've tried to understand data and technology from a kind of industrial era mindset. You know, thinking of data as a kind of widget whose value is related to its price in the market and a set of inputs and costs and marginal cost equaling marginal revenue and stuff in standard economic theory. And with data and much of tech, that doesn't really apply. And that's been quite confusing to a lot of people. And myself and my co-author, Nick Kanauer, argue that actually we need to think about economic value differently in a more fundamental way. And we've had history for the last well over a century in economics of answering the question of what creates economic value with a very simple answer. Price equals value. That, you know, whatever the value of something is just determined by whatever the market says it is, supply equals demand. That's what it's worth. End of conversation. And because so many digital products and services are at least free to the end consumer, even if there's still a revenue model behind them, that kind of way of thinking doesn't seem to quite work. And so we argue that value more fundamentally comes from what we call solving human problems, that we're organizing the world in some way that meets our needs. And we do this in the physical world. You know, we organize some molecules and energy into a nice meal or into a house or into a car. But in the digital world, we're organizing bits into something that meets our needs or provides service to us. And the thing about software that's different than much of the physical world is that organizing of things to meet your needs can happen at a much, much faster pace and rate. Actually, Brian Arthur, Santa Fe Institute, 
wrote some very profound things about this in his Nature of Technology, that all value creation processes are these kind of recombinant evolutionary processes of experimentation, trying different forms of organization and order. And in the physical and social world, you know, those processes happen relatively slowly, but in the world of software, they can happen incredibly quickly. And the process of replication is essentially zero, zero cost. And one way to interpret what's going on in tech is that it's evolving value in a different and faster way than we've seen in the more physically based economy that we've had previously. And that you know, looking at market prices alone is not a necessarily a good indication of what's going on there. And this evolution is creating new concentrations of power, just as Diane was saying, and that looking at it through the lens of power is just as important as looking at it through the lens of, of price and also looking at it through the lens of you know what kinds of problems is it solving for society versus what kinds of problems is it creating again there's a tendency in standard economics if it's got a price it's got to be valuable to society in some way it's got to be in essence good for society but you know you can also have you know, products and services that create more problems than they solve. So when social media is damaging democracy, for example, maybe it's not creating value for society. This different way of thinking of it gives you license to ask a whole set of questions that the standard way of looking at through economics tends to dismiss. You know, you brought up this kind of ratcheting, recombinant, red queen arms race thing going on here. You brought up Brian Arthur. In Diana, in your piece on Daedalus, you talked about the way that platforms will generally charge different prices to each side, often zero on the consumer side, with the commission charged to suppliers. This reflects the usually greater sensitivity of consumers to pricing. We do not have to go out to dine, but restaurants need customers to survive. So I'm thinking about this in terms of a kind of like food web in which there are these emergent kind of like predatory organizations and institutions, and it's all ratcheting faster and faster. You can think of a shout out to Jeffrey West and his finite time singularity, this idea that there's an innovation crisis cycle that just keeps spiraling closer down the drain when you like throw a penny down one of those like uh, black hole simulators at the museum. So <laughs> shout out to will a large complex system be stable? I have a question for you both about the scale of this and whether this is actually manageable. You know, when you think about the rhetoric of the 1990s and the web was seen as a global unifier, and it's clear now that people and states are retrenching into something less global. I'm wondering, like, where you see the limits? And where you see a sweet spot, perhaps, in the actual order structure of all of this and like how many layers are necessary in order to keep it working if it's going to continue at the scale that it's going now? I don't know who wants to take that first. It's an interesting question, isn't it? One of the features of the digital economy is that optimal scale is global if you've got zero marginal costs. And so there is this kind of impetus to become as large as possible. But that sense of the economic efficiency, as Eric was saying previously, rubs up against things that are not such good outcomes, democratic accountability, power, and all of those issues. So how do we trade off the economic efficiency against those other issues? Your question made me think also about supply chains, global supply chains, where again, 
the push for efficiency, gave us this incredibly complex set of relationships across national borders, which people don't even know about. We don't monitor these in the statistics. Here in the UK, we had a situation recently where the energy price rises led to the closure of one of two factories making fertilizer, which is very energy intensive. It turned out that one of the byproducts of that was carbon dioxide used in the food processing industry and packaging food. So there was a crisis about could the foods continue to be supplied. And neither party to that transaction, the finance director of the fertilizer company and the food companies, they didn't know that they had this interdependency. And we've seen it in the vaccine supply chains, where it turns out to put vaccine in a vial and get it to people for injections is unbelievably complex across national borders. And so there too, I think there's a question about have we got the scale wrong because we've not been thinking about the right trade-off between straight economic efficiency, lowest production costs, and other things that we might care about more. So, you know, whether it's national security or food security of supply. So that's my first riff on your question. Interested to know what you think, Eric. (laughs) Well, very much aligned with your views, Diane. I would note that economics has a long tradition of thinking of the economy as a self-stabilizing system. You know, make it knocked out of kilter through exogenous shocks, but you know, has this tendency to go back to some kind of equilibrium. But yeah, you know, the complex systems perspective gives us another view on this that at least to me looks more consistent with the real world. That as networks grow both in scale and complexity, these interdependencies, just as Diane was describing in supply chains, but they also exist in other networks, you know, physical infrastructure networks, social networks, financial networks, and so on. You know, you get these effects, whereas at SFI, sometimes they're called complexity catastrophes, where you know, either the interdependencies get so interdependent that you get a kind of gridlock where the system just can't move or change or adapt, and then it becomes maladaptive to its environment. Or you get these situations where you have these cascades and fragilities in the network where, just as Diane was describing in supply chains, you know, a small change or vulnerability can have very nonlinear effects causing the network to kind of unravel in some way. And if we zoom back, one way to think about the economy is it's been a many thousands of years kind of interplay between forces of human cooperation, which have built up, you know, these networks, businesses and cities and societies and supply chains and knowledge communities and so on over time. And driving force of that increase of our scale of cooperation has been not just economies of scale, which are are important, but also really economies of knowledge, that creating complex knowledge requires lots of diversity and lots of scale. You know, think of the knowledge that goes into making modern jet aircraft or the space station or an iPhone or something. And the competition between that growth in scale and networks and cooperation, but also versus competition within that. And, you know, also issues of free riding and bad actors and so on, whole game theory literature about how cooperation can be undermined by certain exploitative strategies. And so even though the macro trend has been increasing scale of cooperation over very long periods of time, you know, we do have these periods of collapse and, and retrenchment and unraveling as well. You know, one could look at the current era and think that we're unfortunately in one of those phases at the moment. I was thinking just the other day about that wonderful Joseph Tainter book about the collapse of complex societies, which came to mind just thinking about the unraveling of the globalized production world that we saw grow from the 1980s onwards. It feels very current. So, I mean, since we're talking about coordination and cooperation, let's talk about trust. 
Diane, you say in, in your piece on Daedalus, the trust networks or communities need to join market and hierarchy as a standard organizational form. How do we scale this? I mean, Richie Waru has written about this, has proposed that like distributed public ledgers are one way of doing this. Many people are skeptical of this. At SFI, Helena Misson is looking at this. And I mean, honestly, probably the entire discipline of economics wouldn't exist if it weren't for the innovation of money as a way of scaling trust across communities. Given that we seem to be in a kind of transitional period here, what do you suspect might emerge as the means by which people are capable of trusting one another at the scale at which our civilization demands it? I don't have an easy answer to that. But I would observe that actually we know that we've had a very high level of trust because we've had these global transactions going on where as an individual buy something online that's going to be delivered from somebody you don't know in Vietnam. And we have managed to sustain that very complex system of relationships of trust that made that possible. So I think part of the question is, what do you think the problem is? Is the problem that's breaking down and we want to recreate it in some way? It's not obvious to me that decentralization per se solves the problem because you've still got to have trust at the end going in. You know, There's still some authentication that's needed at some point in that chain. So I don't have an easy answer because I think we need to specify much more carefully what we think the trust problem is. And there are you know, many, many examples of high trust activities going on, but at small scale, but also at global scale. That was a way of not answering the question. Eric. <laughs> well, you know, one can think of trust as having kind of both a software and a hardware component to it. And the software starts with our intuitive behaviors and norms and those evolved over a very long period of time as humans are a social species. And so, you know, our tightest circles of trust tend to be with our friends and family and people that we know personally. And that kind of software of interpersonal relationships can work. But, you know, a key step in human development is what the economist Paul Seabright likes to call being in the company of strangers that we can transact and trust, you know, as Diane said, you know, somebody on the other side of the world we've never met before. And it was a set of social technologies creating the hardware side of that, whether that's laws, institutions, practices, money, banking, you know, or in the more modern form, Bitcoin, for example. And there's been a long history of innovation of those mechanisms that have expanded those networks of trust, but they all have an inherent fragility to them in that they're emergent phenomena. They kind of require everyone to believe in them. You know, if everyone believes in the law and or believes in money, it works. But if enough people stop believing in that, then it all kind of collapses. We've seen this in countries where we've had state collapse. And we're seeing something at the kind of global level in terms of an unraveling of global trust and the institutions and norms that supported that. So there's a couple of questions that might be asked in rebuilding that is, do we need new innovations in the kind of hardware side, new mechanisms, new institutional structures that can you know, adapt to the world we're in today to rebuild and expand that circle of trust? Or do we also have issues on kind of the more software side of culture, norms, behavior, moral frameworks, issues of identity and things like that never go away, but if not attended to, can either decay or can actually become toxic, as, for example, identity has in politics, where we have very intense trust within groups and very intense distrust between groups. 
there's a thread running through everything that's been said over the last, I don't know, 15 minutes or so that points me back to Sam Bowles and Wendy Carlin and the writing that they've done on the, the reemergence of the civil society, the sense that the state and the market have hollowed out this mesocosm of mutual aid networks, neighborhood relationships, you know, families and, you know, communities of faith and practice and tribal governance and so on. And to kind of interleave this into your comments, Eric, on Katharina Lima de Miranda and Dennis Snower's SAGE framework, I'd love to talk about the way to start thinking more rigorously about how to understand economics in a moral framing and what it means to really think clearly about well-being and the instantiation of the networks and processes by which well-being is accomplished in society. So I don't know if you want to start, Eric, and and just lay this out. Yeah. Well, yeah. No, I think Sam and Wendy absolutely write brilliantly about these issues that states and markets tend to be built on, you know, what I call the kind of hardware side of trust. States control a lot of the institutions related to that and markets kind of run on that infrastructure of laws and money and accounting and all that other stuff. But we have neglected this layer of community, social capital, culture of mutualism. And we've actually promoted, particularly in the US, this highly individualistic culture that's actually quite antithetical, quite corrosive to bonds of trust and community. This kind of trust vacuum has been filled to a large extent by identity politics. It is naturally not any easy answer to this, but one important step is to actually understand the importance of these things. And as we try to analyze and measure and understand the economy, to actually quite explicitly try to get at and you know start systematically measuring these things. So just as an example, you mentioned the paper by Dennis and Katharina. They propose a very nice framework for combining a set of hard or formal economic measures with a set of more social measures and trying to explicitly get it indicators that could be proxies for that kind of social trust, social capital in societies. And they found some very interesting results from that research. I'm sure Diane and her work on economic metrics has also thought a lot about how we get more at both the individual well-being, but also this kind of social health of an economy. Yeah, it's been a kind of long quest to figure out how to define and measure better social capital. And there's a lot of interesting work there. There has been this long habit in economics of dividing the world into things the market does and things the state does. And that was always reductionist because, of course, there are lots of economic institutions that are not either. Uh, Companies, as Herbert Simon pointed out, are neither. Trade unions, babysitting circles, parent-teacher associations, you know, we've got a rich set of institutions that are part of the trust fabric of society. I think you can start to introduce some more rigour using Eleanor Ostrom's framework, and there's a lot of interest now in thinking about what are the resources, what are the characteristics, the economic characteristics of those resources, what are the terms of access through which you might govern those, and the, the trust relationships that might make different models of using and allocating resources work effectively. So there's a lot of interesting work applying this to digital contexts, to think about them as a commons, as you raised earlier, and applying quite rigorous models of asymmetries of information and access to resources to thinking about what kinds of institutional structures. 
Victorian era saw huge institutional innovation of this kind as well. It was when we got mutual societies and cooperatives and trade unions. So I think the challenge is for the emergence of those kinds of institutions for an economy that's got different economic characteristics, which are much more in the nature of public goods, these non-rival things that you mentioned right at the start. I want to back up a little bit, actually, because I think that this is a key concept for people who aren't familiar with this stuff. Eric, if you can talk about ontological stacks and the way that GDP rests on a series of assumptions about what matters and the way that there are other ways of applying these metrics, you know, many, many, many other forms have been proposed, but they are flawed. You mentioned, for instance, gross national happiness, but what is happiness? And you talk about the difference between the hedonic and the eudaimonic. And so I think like that would be a really interesting pit to explore. Well, this idea of an ontological stack sounds like a, a very sort of obscure philosophical concept. It's actually pretty straightforward. So, you know, our ontology, our set of concepts and language and ideas that help us kind of define and understand our world. And what's in that ontology plays a big part as to how we see the world and how we act and behave in it. And in our economic ontology over the past couple of centuries, we've built up what I call this kind of stack or like a layer cake of ideas that all sort of connect into each other. And so starting at the very bottom are a set of philosophical concepts rooted in utilitarian ethics and philosophy about human sort of goal of life in essence is to maximize individual human happiness. And the goal of a society is to maximize the happiness or utility for the most people. This was, you know, Bentham, Jeremy Bentham's big principle. And in philosophy, this is called a hedonic view because it's focused on uh, this idea of happiness or utility. And then economists kind of got in the picture and created a set of ideas and models building off of that where they viewed humans as driven or motivated by this idea of maximizing individual pleasure or happiness. And that was the key to understanding human action. And then we step up another level in the stack to the level of a system. You put a bunch of happiness, pleasure maximizing humans together in something like a market, and you get you know a set of results about how markets work and how markets can maximize the welfare of society. And then you keep going up the stack to a set of normative statements of you know, what does that mean we should do in terms of policies that maximize that welfare for society. And then you go up to the top, well, how should we measure? Is society getting better or worse? And that brings us to concepts like GDP. And then finally, at the very, very top of the stack, you get a set of narratives or memes about how society works or should work. My favorite example of that is from the, the 1980s movie Wall Street. The protagonist says, greed is good. So that's an example of a meme one could interpret out of this system. And what I argue is that one of the reasons why we haven't had as much success yet as we'd like in shifting to a new way of thinking, a new paradigm, is we haven't kind of built as coherent a stack. That the existing system thought for all of its flaws and critiques we've thrown at it has this wonderful coherence to it, that all the pieces kind of do fit together. And, you know, in the constructing of a new paradigm, and Sam and Wendy have written about this as well, we need to start figuring out how to put the pieces together into something that's equally coherent and also can be used in a practical sense in the real world, just as the models and concepts and data and metrics like GDP and so on had a big impact in our world. Diane, do you care to comment on that? So, yes, this idea of thinking about changing the way that we think about things and 
having to do it in different ways is absolutely one that I agree with. I've thought about different metaphors for it, I suppose. I mean, one is the kind of O-ring example, the weakest link is going to determine the outcomes for the whole system. I've also thought about it in terms of technological standards or the kind of standard where you say you drive on the right or you drive on the left. And if you want to switch to driving on the right from driving on the left, you've got to get everybody to do it at the same time. So it's a similar idea of having to line up lots of different aspects of the system in order to get from where we are to where we want to be. So in keeping with that, it seems like a good time to discuss your piece, The Public Option, because if we're talking about everyone driving on the other side of the road, this is a piece in which you propose making social media a public service. And you know you compare it to the BBC and the way that certain things basically should not be in the jurisdiction of markets. Because we were talking about earlier, if data is the air that we're all breathing, then what kind of sense does it make for a few people to be getting filthy rich over that? I'll let you <laughs> lead that one in. So I like markets. I'm a, you know, I'm a very conventionally trained economist. and I think markets can do some good things, but they need to be shaped. And the idea here is to think about how the BBC has shaped the markets in which it operates. It's the most trusted institution in the country. It's perhaps the most trusted in the world, highly trusted, particularly for its news. It has a very distinctive model in the British taxpayers fund it and there is a governance structure that keeps it independent from government so it's not a state broadcaster but it's a publicly funded and in some sense publicly owned broadcaster and that different business model means that it's not in the business of trying to maximize advertising revenue or maximizing number of viewers per program because that's what makes the money for many commercial broadcasters so it's a different kind of beast and introducing a different kind of beast into a commercial market, which is thriving, has meant that competition occurs in different ways than it would if you only had the one business model. And it's about quality. It's about standards of impartiality and truth and news, as well as making things that are really popular so lots of people want to watch them. And so the analogy with social media is that actually part of the reason they're so toxic is that they've all got the same model and they're competing against each other to maximize the number of clicks because that gets them the advertising dollars. What would happen if we introduced a different kind of body with a completely different business model and set of principles, which was about maximizing truth or maximizing democratic accountability? And what would the institutional framework around that look like? I'm as certain as I can be that if we had that kind of thing, it would change the dynamics of some of the online markets, some of the social media. I would very much agree with Diane's analysis of the issues with social media companies. There is a lot of evidence that at the root of the problems that are being created is this advertising model. And even there have been some interesting studies showing that in pursuit of clicks, the algorithm so tune the content to press our outrage buttons and trigger our kind of deep you know, moral emotions in ways that are actually even you know mentally and physically harmful to individuals, but very, very toxic to society. And some AI researchers have even shown that the AI algorithms have actually tuned our brains to serve the algorithm's interests in maximizing revenue. 
<laughs> rather than the algorithms working for us, we're working for the algorithms. And uh, that seems quite backwards. So I think Diane's proposal that we need a structure that flips this model around so it's actually serving people and society is absolutely right. The BBC is one great model, but there are you know a variety of models for dealing with economic institutions that have negative characteristics and just left to the free market and where we need them to serve a social purpose. And it doesn't, as Diane said, it doesn't automatically mean it's under state control or anything like that. There are ways that these things can be structured. If we zoom out just a bit wider, we can also say that the traditional economic framing of markets and states as being these kind of competing institutions is also just very misconceived. You know, the sort of standard view is that we've got this big trade-off between markets which are efficient and so on, and states which are kind of interfering and inefficient. And state action is only justified for very narrow cases of market failure, or creating public goods and so on. An alternative view, a bit more of an SFI view, is this is an ecology of institutions that are mutually interdependent and interacting, but collectively should be you know, serving the public good and human well-being. And asking do you prefer, you know, states or markets or which is better or worse? You know, like in ecology, it's asking, should we have plants or animals? Well, no, you need both in a healthy ecology. But the question is how they're interacting to create a healthy ecology. So kind of orthogonal to that, listening to you speak on this, I took as a critique of libertarianism, your comment on Katharina and Dennis's piece where you say well-being at the individual level may or may not imply a healthy system that will sustain flourishing tomorrow. I'm thinking of Michael Lockman's work on the evolution of costly signaling in the body as a cancer prevention mechanism and the way that, to your comments earlier, Diane, about supply chains, that there's a sense in which convenience comes at extraordinary cost. So I think maybe to bring this into a landing here, I'd love to hear the both of you riff on the tensions, not between institutions and other institutions, but between humans and the institutions that we've created and within which we are embedded and where we may be inclined to give people too little or too much agency with that respect and how to think more clearly about that particular rat king, <laughs> if you will. Well, maybe just to kick things off on this, again, I think the debate between kind of a libertarian individualistic view and more societal view is another one of these kind of you know, false dichotomies or false debates. What I would think of as the classical liberal tradition, uh, individual rights, and essentially the great breakthrough of the classical liberals was this idea of moral equality, you know, that we all have an equal right to a good life and that every human life is of equal value, which was a pretty radical statement at the time. And that is a foundational belief and value of Western society. But where the kind of extreme libertarians get it wrong is that society is not just a kind of linear adding up of everybody's kind of individual happiness or rights. And this is where the kind of SFI perspective comes in. There's also this emergent property of when we're all interacting and doing our thing in a society that you can have good and bad societies or healthy or unhealthy societies. And what's happening at that emergent level of society then feeds back and very dramatically affects the course of individual lives and happiness and opportunities to fulfill one's potential. So again, it isn't a question of societal welfare or individual welfare. It's understanding how these things fit together in a dynamic emergent system and create a set of arrangements that enable human flourishing is what's called the eudaimonic perspective. 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And there's a lot of inertia in institutional arrangements. So we've got arrangements that were pretty good for the mid-20th century. And the character of the economy has changed so much that we need to evolve some new institutions which can accommodate the ways that our individual decisions affect each other. And we build that into thinking about what better outcomes look like and have that period of institutional innovation for the digital economy. So I think we're in the early days of thinking about that. People are starting to recognise it does require different kinds of analysis, including complexity analysis. And so I guess I'm broadly optimistic that we can do that and really good people, as we've been discussing throughout, are starting to think about aspects of this. But it's quite a big thing, changing institutions, and it requires, as well as the thinking about it and the academics doing analysis, the politics of it, the political economy of it, and bringing all of that together. So back to that question about how do you get people to stop driving on the left and start driving on the right. Yeah. So just in closing, I'd be curious to know what the two of you think are the questions that we haven't asked on this call that we should have, or perhaps what are the questions that other people thinking about this do not seem to be asking and should, in your estimation, be asking about these matters? Like, How do we steer research, specifically fundamental research on these topics in a way that can yield insight to all of the puzzles that we're grappling with here? I'll try one answer. It's a very social science answer, and that's about participation. To what extent can we even begin to answer questions about what makes a good society if we don't have more participatory ways of doing the research about it? And this is particularly true of economists who think downloading a data set and doing econometrics is the right way to answer questions. But I think when you're bringing the morals, the ethics back into questions about progress, we should be doing more about how do we ensure that people have a voice in that. And I would just add that this new understanding of the economy and bringing the kinds of tools and ideas that SFI has pioneered into the conversation isn't just kind of academic, nice to have, and something interesting for all of us to chat about, but really is existential. We're coming into a period of change in the economy, particularly with climate change, but also with the exponential advance in technology. We haven't even talked about the impacts of AI, let alone what we're experiencing today that much of economics was developed as a tool for understanding marginal change. In fact, the originators of many of the ideas we still use today were, in fact, called the marginalists, because that was kind of their key insight. But the world we're going into is not one experiencing marginal change. It's experiencing transformation at a systems level and at a human level. And so our best hope of getting to a place that's better is if we can deeply understand that complex system and processes of change that are going. Well, this has been awesome. Thank you both so much for the time that you've given to this conversation. We'll link to all these papers in the show notes. Any closing remarks? Exactly the right kind of discussion to be having. So it's been been great. Thank you. Yeah, just to say thanks, Michael, for pulling this together. And Diana, it's always just a huge pleasure to get to talk. Likewise. Excellent. Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex systems science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.